continue in our worship, I will be reading for us the passage for today's message. Today's scripture comes from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. This is the reading of God's word. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. And now let's give our hearts and ears to the preaching of God's word. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Thank you, Pastor Jimmy. Come to a very difficult, uh, loaded passage here. Been asking the staff for a lot of prayers. But I hope that you guys give your full attention to this. This is immensely relevant today. Uh, I think if you pay attention to anything of the Christian world, you find singers, celebrities, pastors, writers, bloggers, pastors, influencers, missionaries, apologists, at some point come out and say something like, um, I'm not a believer anymore. Now, that, that, that was true back then, but this is just not true of me right now. I don't categorize myself as a Christian. I don't believe what I used to believe. I don't follow Jesus. And that's awfully, awfully sad. At times, shocking. And uh, your pastor here doesn't take any joy in talking about a topic like this, but today we we must. It's here in the Bible, in chapters 5 and 6, so the Holy Spirit has a purpose in talking about this passage, and the Holy Spirit, of course, who is always timelessly relevant, actually predicts what continues to happen today. And I'm called as one of your pastors to study and to wrestle and to deliver a clear understanding and some applications of this passage. There are three different audiences being addressed, not just here in chapter 6, but beginning in chapter 5. The first audience being addressed are those 
who are ignorant. They live in ignorance. That's chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Second audience are those who are living in immaturity. It's the first three verses of our chapter that Pastor Jimmy just read. And then from verses 4 through 12, we come to apostasy. Apostasy. So ignorance, immaturity, apostasy. First, ignorance. First two verses of chapter 5 basically read, Every high priest ought to deal with those who are wayward and ignorant with gentleness. Every good high priest, because they themselves are beset by weakness, those who don't know better, those who have never been taught or learned these things, yes, those who go out in Christian life with ignorance, without the light of knowledge, deal with them very gently. So in the Old Testament, you have sacrifices for Thanksgiving, sacrifices when you are utterly grateful. Thanksgiving is coming up. Hopefully, it's not just a season. It's a lifestyle. But also, the Old Testament has sacrifices that people ought to give for sins. But only certain types of sins. Did you know this? Not intentional. Not premeditated. But only those sins that are done rashly, Without knowledge. Sin's done in ignorance. And so the high priest <clears throat> would perform all kinds of ceremonies and rituals. Namely, sacrificing the blood of animals to symbolically cover over the ignorant sins of the people of God. Now, this is ignorance. Ignorance. Of course, we have ignorant expectations. You know, people say you can never really be ready to be married or ready to become parents until you actually get married to become a parent. And so much of our early struggles and battles and fights that Sonia and I had was because of just completely wrong expectations. We were ignorant. You know, some people actually dare to believe that before you get married, you're never actually going to be tested. Or you're never going to want to lose it and lose it really badly. I mean, lose it in a way that you thought you could never lose it in this way. Or even be driven or tempted to the point where you start soberly considering, is this worth it? Like, can I stay in this? Can I continue to be with or love someone like this? Much like Christian life. And if you have naive, kind of romanticized, ignorant expectations of Christian life, please... You ought to be educated and enlightened by the word of God, what Jesus promises up front. He says, you're going to have to end up dying for me. Give up your whole life or you cannot follow me. You cannot follow me. Midweek this week, I was just paying attention to my phone. I tell my girls not to do this, but here I was paying attention to my phone at night, walking on a random sidewalk, and then I just completely slipped. I slipped so bad, I thought I was going to face plant. Got scrapes on my knee. It was bleeding throughout my jeans. I got scraped. I was sore throughout my body. And one of the students came out of a cafeteria and he said, Sir, oh, sir, are you okay? You need help? And it felt so, so kind of sad because the backpack was on top of me. I was just sprawled out on the floor. I felt my age. And yes, if you're distracted by the phone or you don't have proper lighting, the scriptures say at the beginning of chapter 5, you will go wayward, you will stumble and fall. Ignorance, ignorance. Second audience that this author wants to address, immaturity, immaturity. 
Again, in verse 1, it reads, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. Now, how many of us would readily, sincerely admit to yourself that, oh, this is talking about me. If you assume that you're mature, you're like, oh, I'm not a bunny slope skier. Yeah, at least I'm intermediate. In fact, you know, pastor, you're like, do you know how long I've been in church? Like 20, 30 years. I mean, do you know how long I know this whole kind of culture and business and activities and how involved I've been? If you assume that you're mature, I want to ask you, who do you gauge that against? I mean, obviously comparing with someone, right? You might be comparing with your small group. You might be gauging uh, against the uh, collective of our church, like the overall maturity or condition of our church. Uh, I'm sorry to say you shouldn't do that. To really gauge your maturity and immaturity, you should gauge yourself against the author of Hebrews. You should gauge yourself against someone like Apostle Paul. In other words, don't be subjective about your assessment of your spiritual maturity and maturity. It should match the objectivity of God's word in the scriptures. And the first telltale sign of those who are immature is they're not aware that they are immature and they do nothing to learn and grow out of it. Oof. Yeah, that's how we're starting today. Those who are spiritually immature are basically just, they're just pretty much asleep. Like all the time. And they don't want to graduate from elementary school with elementary doctrines. The author goes on and lists. He says, you know, these are elementary. These are foundational stuff. Repentance and faith. Look at that in verse 2. Repentance and faith. That's how you come to a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You must turn away from your former life. You must turn from a self-mastered life and submit and give your life in faith to Jesus as God and Savior. He's saying some of you have to Learn that as if you never learned it for the first time. He goes on and says other elementary doctrines. Washings and laying on of hands. Most likely this means baptism, entrance into the church covenantal community. Maybe it has to do with what we saw last week, ordination of public leaders and officers like the deacons. But these are elementary teachings. They're basic. Also the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Yes, Jesus arose bodily, physically. It wasn't figurative. It wasn't symbolic. It wasn't just inspirational. It was historical. It was factual. It was with flesh and blood that he arose. Therefore, all of our loved ones and you yourselves, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you too will rise bodily along with your souls. And eternal judgment would come. Jesus, namely, being the judge of all, the living and the dead. Now, of course, this author, and of course, all your pastors and leaders here, we have nothing, nothing ever against someone having to learn it in a way that you need to be reminded of these things. This author has nothing against reinforcing things, repetitively preaching things, reapplying things, strengthening people in the things that they have once taught. Oh, but, but. If you're immature, if you're immature, it's like you never learned it 
ever to begin with, and you never graduated. Now, you know, with slides these days, all we've got is the, basically the, the seminal passage, but you've got to bring your physical uh, Bibles in the coming weeks and days, because I'm going to be referring to other passages here. In chapter 5, he goes over the symptoms of immaturity. Immaturity begins with, you don't know you're immature, and you don't want to learn and grow out of it. But look at verse 11, another symptom. Chapter 5. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. What the author means by this is you don't want to listen. You don't really apply yourself to listen. You become dull, desensitized. You kind of shut down your ears. Another symptom of immaturity, verse 12 in chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, milk, not solid food. Another symptom of immaturity. You can't articulate, teach, pass along anything to children or adults. Why? Because you never really learned it or grasped it the first time. Signs of immaturity. Signs of immaturity. You don't want to listen. You can't pass it on. You can't bless or benefit anyone else because you haven't grasped it yourself. Last thing, verses 13 and 14. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You're unskilled and you're undiscerning when it comes to the scriptures and real life situations. Those who are immature don't want to learn and grow out of it. Those who are immature don't really actually want to listen or learn. Those who are immature can't teach or pass it along. And finally, of course, those who are immature uh, have no skills. You don't really have skills. You've never practiced. You're never trained in it. You're not discerning because you never use it. You never, you never use scripture to real-life situations. You know, like a fine, maybe a world-class, maybe you get a Michelin star chef. You know how skilled and discerning they have to be? Just in picking the right ingredients. Hopefully organic, top-notch, the finest ingredients. Local. Then with all the preparations before even beginning to cook that meal. The skill and discernment of the timing of how long you should cook something. The temperature at which it should be cooked. Even the arrangement of all the ingredients, ingredients together in that pot or pan. And then, voila, depending upon the skills and the discernment, out comes this fantastically gourmet, nutritious meal. Now, here is Jesus. Here is Jesus Christ himself. Who had to handle scriptures skillfully and with discernment when he went through his own life. Jesus himself only overcame temptations, didn't become cynical, jaded, and corrupted because he was skilled in scriptures. Jesus lived a sinless life because he was skillful in discernment with scriptures. Jesus lived a potent, freest, most joyful, God-pleasing life 
because he was mature in skills and discernment with scriptures. Let me ask you, my dear friends, let me ask you, my dear friends, listening in this morning, this is so, so important for you, okay? You're driving to work, caught in traffic, overwhelmed by anxiety and stress and worry over the state of your business, or just the fact that you're stuck in traffic again. Do any scripture verses come to mind? You just had a blowout fight. I mean, this, was, this one was bad. This is bad between your spouse or with your kids. Your kids are just uncontrollable. They're going crazy on you. Do you even know which book of the Bible you could go to? You're feeling all kinds of things that are just depleting your energy and joy. You are profoundly, profoundly not motivated in life or with anything. Are there any skills or discernment at play that would take your present real life situation and you have the discernment that this passage, this word of God, that God wants to speak to you in that situation? I'll contrast it with this. How would you like it if you came to Christ Central every Sunday and all you heard the pastor would say, God is good, God is good all the time. Now say that back with me, and we just do it that for five minutes every Sunday. That's all we talk about. God is good all the time, and then we sing it, we chant it, we rhyme it, we rap it, we dance it. We put it all over with the beautiful design, all over the screens. We have banners and slogans. God is good all the time. God is good all the time. How much would that help you? Because life is not good, and you are not good all the time. Here's the gap. Here's the gap. God is good all the time. You and my life is not good all the time. What bridges that gap? Do you have skills? You see, the more specific, the more tailor-made the word of God comes into your situation, that stress, that loss, that pain, that anxiety, that fallout, that hurt, the more potent it is. This is precisely how the Holy Spirit works. This is how you spiritually grow. Skills and discernment. The more it applies to you as if you feel like, wow, I feel like God is talking to me right here, right now. The more hopeful, the more helpful the more you feel like God is with you and for you. Now, you see, I'm really, really afraid. I'm really worried because I love this church. I love you. I love you. But that's just got to be frank. This is like family time. We have to have family time sometimes, too. This is an extended spiritual family. I love you like my family. I had these talks with my daughters. People have had these talks with me when I was a younger boy, too. Can we have family time now? Here's my family time. Some of you are 20. 20 years in, you're like 40, 50 years old. And I got to be frank with you, brother or sister. You have not grown or progressed in any of these skills or discernment. You can't pass it along, and it sounds like you have no interest. And this kind of immaturity, although we love you, is not attractive. It's lame. The imagery that the author uses here is, It's like baby milk 
and you can't even chew or digest solid food. I'm pretty sure back in those days, they didn't have formula or bottles. So we're talking about full-grown adults breastfeeding still. (laughs) That's really what it looks like. We've got middle-aged women and men still, no matter how long you've been going to church, no matter how much you profess to love and believe and follow Jesus Christ, if you are immature, most likely you're going to present more problems than solve them. If you're immature, you're going to drain and take from people rather than serve and give. If you're immature, you're actually not going to help but actually harm, even inadvertently. And, man, my brother and sister, starting with myself as your pastor, and starting with your spouses, and your children, and your relatives, and your co-workers, and your friends, and your PTA, and all the sports buddies... Do you know how much more they could be blessed by you if you were maturing? Do you know what would happen to churches when people were actually maturing? They wanted to learn and grow out of this immature state. Oh, wow, Pastor, today you sound like you're kind of shaming me. I'm not used to this from you. You're right, my fault. As a pastor, maybe I don't do this enough. Family time. Oh, you, you sound like you're using shame to kind of like, oh, make me feel really bad about it. There are appropriate and most important things in life you should be ashamed of. Because I take this straight from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. It says, approved workmen are not ashamed in rightly handling the word of God. That is a cause for shame. Can you rightfully, skillfully, with discernment, recall, look to, apply, teach, uh, get to that word? Because, again, without the word of God, you don't have God. Without the word of God, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Without the word of God, you don't have an anchor, an anchor that drives you through all the floods and storms. Oh, so for the ignorant. Oh, so for the immature. Final audience, apostasy, apostasy. Verse 6, here we just read, and then have fallen away, fallen away. Now, that sounds passive, sounds uh, accidental even, but I assure you, this is a calculated, accumulated, deliberate act to fall away as in this verse 6 is to apostatize it is a deliberate act now who is this describing what kind of person is the author talking about here there are many many views on this this is hotly contested i'm going to do you a favor i'm going to boil them and summarize them down to two dominant views two different interpretations on who this is talking about the first view is this This is speaking of someone who has become a Christian but can lose his or her faith and beloved standing before God. You can be saved but then forever lost. That's the first view. And the reasoning goes because back in verse 4, you have kind of this strong experiential language. It says, those who have been enlightened... 
those who have tasted the heavenly gift, and those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Enlightened, tasted, shared. And so the assumption is this. Once it gets, like you feel it, you get all the feels. It's so palpable and experiential. Therefore, it must be true. The author here is dispelling that notion. The author here is saying, no matter how personal, how powerful, how touchy-feely, how result-oriented you might be, this person, once a true believer, can actually become someone who is no longer a believer. Now, I really appreciate and respect this type of interpretation because it takes the Bible seriously. It wants to interpret the Bible exegetically, not make up things we want to believe and impose it into the Bible, but come to believe in things from the Bible that it's telling us and revealing about God to us. So I appreciate that. But this is no no less a, a, a reversal of that lyric in that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, where it goes, I once was lost. I once was lost. I couldn't see. I was blind. I was deaf and mute. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Uh, This is to suggest the reversal of that. I once was found, but now I'm lost. And I'm lost for good. So what do you think about this? This first view. What do you think about this interpretation of Hebrews chapter 6? Well, what you and I should always do is you should take hotly contested, maybe more difficult, and even obscure passages of scripture and interpret that difficult scripture in the light of much more plain non-controversial easier passages that are clear oh you see in john chapter 10 here's what jesus says uh, i know my sheep my sheep hear my voice my sheep know me and no one will snatch no one will snatch my sheep out of my hands See, it sounds like in direct contradiction maybe to this first view. How about Jude? Jude, there's no chapters. There's just one chapter toward the end of scriptures. And it closes like this. It's like a benediction, but it's awfully comforting and strengthening because it reads this, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. We have a God who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless. Apostle Paul says, he who began a good work in you, chapter 1, verse 6, will complete it. He will finish it. He will guarantee it. He will consummate it. He does not fail, or leave his projects or works undone. You see, the truth is, the truth is, even though you and I are very forgetful, God is ever mindful. Even though you and I can be ignorant and weak and stumble and go wayward, God is all the more faithful. Even though God knows everything about us, he is stronger and surer, surer still. All right, so here's the second view then. The first view is that this is speaking about once a 
someone who is a Christian can actually lose his or her salvation and beloved status and relationship with God forever. The second view is this. No, this is describing someone who is a counterfeit Christian. Counterfeit Christianity. Looks like the real thing, but not the real thing. There are people who feel, act, smell, sound, all the parts. But it turns out it was never the real thing. I think this is true to the original historical context, and I think this is what the perspective of a pastor, a pastor clearly who wrote this book, Hebrews. Those who were counterfeit later on in time will show their true colors. If not on this side, but on the other side before the eternal judgment of God in Jesus Christ. But usually those who were counterfeit playing around with counterfeit Christianity, will reach a point where it just gets too hard to keep pretending. Let's just be frank. I mean, like, why do you keep up with all this religious stuff? Like, you got to go to church and small groups and serve and do all this kind of stuff when life has gotten tougher and rougher and we just went through the pandemic and your kids are crazier and you don't have enough money, you have no recreation, you don't have enough rest and you feel like you're really unhealthy in so many different ways. I mean, what's the point? Why do I keep tacking on all this other stuff on the weekends? And so what happens is usually those will come to a point where they fall away, deliberate, calculated act of saying, I no longer believe. They make a profession of, I don't believe in Jesus. And then they leave the church. They leave a local church, the fellowship and the worship of a church. And then they, of course, stop following Jesus in their own lifestyle and values and ethics. Now, I think this view accounts for the strong experiential language Enlightened, tasted, and shared, and also accounts for the reality throughout the rest of the scriptures that immediate short term results, immediate short term signs and wonders, immediate hype, immediate fruitfulness, immediate tears, immediate walking down the aisle, immediate spiritual highs and experiences are actually just immediate and can be short lived. They can be awfully deceptive because the acid test of a counterfeit Christian and a true believer is will you last? Will you last? Oh, that's why they give an agricultural reference here, right? In verses 7 and 8, the land, the fruit... The harvest, time will tell what kind of harvest and fruit comes from this person or life. Jesus gave a famous parable to the sower. By the way, Jesus obviously is so smart, so divine, that every time the word of God is taught, heard, listened, or given, the parable of the sower is reenacted every single time. And it's happening right now. In the parable of the sower, Jesus promises this. Whenever the word is sown and given out, not everyone, oh, surely not everyone is going to really respond and register to that in a way that is God-pleasing and will produce fruit. No, actually only one soil does. 
One out of four. It's kind of bad percentage, isn't it? But this is spiritual reality. Oh, a pastor by the name of Eugene Park, I thought wrote a fascinating, very insightful article. Kudos to him. Entitled, Don't Leash Your Faith. Don't Leash Your Faith. He's serving up there at North Point in Silicon Valley. Came out on Gospel Coalition. What he means by this is, all of us here in this room, you tend to care more for things that you own than you rent, right? If you own a car, of course you're going to maintain and upkeep that than a rental car. Now, how do people then rent or lease out their faith today? This is rampant. A lot of you are resting on the work of other people and doing no work for yourself to make this your, your, your own faith. You have too much passivity and just blind reliance on speakers, pastors, writers, maybe parents or your own family. You just keep falling back on your ancestry, okay? Authors or institutions and tribes. John Mark Comer, one of my more favorite authors, recently noted, evangelicals have traded saints for celebrities. So what happens if your faith is all secondhand? You see, you're always borrowing it. You're just renting it. You don't actually do any work on it for yourself, but you just mimic someone else's faith. What happens when that popular brand or ministry or speaker falls? What happens when they leave the faith? And if you only borrow or mimic someone else's faith, as Jesus warned, to be sure, when storms and floods and trials and temptations and sufferings come, your faith that you leased out, it will expire. The rental ends. And I think oftentimes what is framed as deconstruction today, a lot of people who say they're ex-evangelical, ex-Christians, deconstruction, isn't really a deconstruction of things that they used to believe. It's a total reconstruction of an entirely new faith or entirely new spirituality because they never had genuine faith to begin with. Oh, apostasy, apostasy. Can someone who was once found be lost forever? No, no, thanks be to God. But can someone who thought themselves, felt themselves, played and acted the part, was the most church-involved person you would ever see? Oh, can that person later on someday come out and say, I've graduated from this traditional historical Christian business. You know, I've been more enlightened now. I learned a lot more. No, usually it has nothing to do with that. It has something to do with a personal choice, a personal desire, or a personal kind of thing that they want to indulge in usually, but it's couched in these terms. You see, I think 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 makes it really plain. So if you just want a, 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 a simple summary of, I think, everything we just went over on who is this person describing, let me just read this one verse. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. How does apostasy happen? People won't go out, leave the fellowship, the worship of his church for good. And never come back. 
Now, there are two opposite errors in practice. I have experienced and seen both at different churches. The first would go like this. There are certain churches you say, well, you know, you could never leave this church though. Oh, no, no. You, hey, if you leave our church because we're the one true loyal faithful church, we're like the one true church, if you leave our church, you must not be a believer. That kind of behavior is cultic. You should leave that church. Ironically, the church that says that to you, you should leave that church. Because if you leave that church to go to another local church, great, wonderful, and I hope you have good legitimate reasons, a sermon for another day. But the opposite error, which I think is much more rampant today about leaving churches, is that it's just become downright way too casual and convenient. And people don't take it seriously at all. Can I tell you one of my you know, heart wounds that I carry as a pastor? I've been here 15 years. You know, I actually don't forget and I still feel the loss and hurt of people who come and go on. I don't know if on this side of heaven that's ever going to fully heal. Because if I actually cared for that person, it hurts me to know behind their excuses and reasons of leaving this local church, later on I find out they joined no local church at all, ever. I wonder if they'll ever come back. And here is what the author is telling us here in the most sobering way. They went out from us. Why did they leave us? Why did they never come back? Because they were never truly of us. So Hebrews chapter 6 is not dealing with sincere, struggling believers. Hebrews chapter 6, take heart, is not talking about people who are weak and doubting. Hebrews chapter 6 is not talking about if you have questions and indeed should be deconstructing. Now, here are all the things you should deconstruct. The cultural, the corrupted, the systemic, the political elements of your Christian faith that are actually not from God. But they were in your upbringing or background. And it's been very corrupted through the years. This passage is not talking about believers who are depressed or beaten down by Sinning, repeated habitual sinning. This passage is certainly not talking about those who are mourning and grieving. This passage is not talking about people who are just in depression for a long period of time. This passage is not talking about if you're severely, intensely tempted and wanting to give up. No, no, not the temptation to give up. But this passage is specifically talking about because persecution had broken out in, in a second wave that was so awful, so filthy, that some Christian believers said, I'm going to go back to my old Jewish religion. I'm going to revert back to what I used to believe and practice so that I could avoid persecution against Christians. To this, this audience, the author says, be warned, it might be impossible for you to ever come back. You see, that's apostasy. You, you can commit apostasy. Here, 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 here's how you do it. You just reject Jesus, cancel him out, change him out, stop following him, say it, profess it, and then live it out that he is no longer your God and Savior. Then it is impossible to be forgiven. 
then and only then you have fallen away. But this is not our judgment to make. It is God's. Let me close with three quick applications here. Oh, we need some applications here. First, diversify your ministry. Okay? CCSC, hey folks, if we're going to grow up, we got to diversify our ministry to different people. For those who are ignorant, gentle, gentle, gentle with all sympathy. For those who are immature, immature. What do you do with your children? Of course they're immature at that age. What do you do? You stop loving them? No. You love them too much to leave them immature. So with all love, you alarm, awaken, provoke, teach, strongly exhort. And then for those who might be deliberately apostatizing, deliberately canceling out all church altogether, there is the strongest possible warning that you may never come back because it says it's impossible to restore in verse 4. And you're crucifying once again the Son of God, Jesus Christ, verse 6. I don't even want to. I shudder to think about what that really means. But this is what the author is saying that you are doing when you apostatize. Diversify your ministry. Second, you need a balanced spiritual diet. You need a balanced spiritual diet. Can you hear me, folks? Hey, family, can you hear me today? This is no longer optional. A balanced spiritual diet. If you have a poor imbalanced physical diet, your body breaks down. Just time will show it. Your body will break down. Spiritually speaking, it's the same. It's the same. You've got to get off of your favorite pet hobby topics. You've got to know more than Psalm 23. You've got to stop reciting just 1 Corinthians 13. You've got to just listen to more than Christmas or Easter sermons. You've got to have more in your arsenal for your family and community than just those limited arrangements. Because at the end of the day, if you choose only what you like, you only repeat what you like, you're going to stay the way you are right now. And that's what you like. But a balanced spiritual diet is what actually has the power to shape, correct, humble, balance, grow you in the faith. Listen. Pay more attention to the passages that give you a headache. Pay more attention to the passages that you have no idea what it's talking about. Pay more attention to the passages that don't sit well with you. They don't make you feel happy or comfortable. But do you know what that means from God? It means it is to balance and grow and fill you out into a person that looks and acts more like Jesus. Oh, my friends, I did not time this today. You know, one of our announcements is we have growth classes at the church. Now I'm just going through the passage. I'm just going through the passage. Do you, do you know what we teach in the growth classes? Do, do, are you interested? Do you care? Do you know that you live in a day and age where all the resources are put out for you? I know for some of you, you wouldn't know that they were an author of a book of the Bible until we get to heaven. You meet them. And this is, why do you think this is there? Because God is wanting to just obligate and waste your time and bore you to death. No, it's to balance and mature you as he so desires. Are there any books you're reading? Are there any good podcasts you're listening to? Is there anything there that can grow you 
out of the state you're in. Last thing. First, diversify your ministry. Second, balance your spiritual diet. We end with this. How do you make it to the end? Oh. Can I tell you as your pastor, one of my goals, new goals in life, it's just much more realistic. It's no longer lofty or ambitious. I just want to finish without scandalizing, disqualifying myself and ruining the reputation of Jesus or this church. How can I finish well, faithfully, humbly? It tells us. Verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here's how you're going to make it to the end. You cannot afford to be sluggish. You cannot afford to be indifferent. You cannot afford to be casual. You must be earnest. Earnest. Let's just give another word, passion. Oh, my brothers and sisters, where is the interest and passion when it comes to Bible study, when it comes to growing in doctrine, when it comes to praying for yourself and your family or for others? And do you know that the lack of passion or interest that you have in this, but you clearly have passion interest in anything else and everything else, communicates the world to everyone. I mean, people must, who live with you, must interpret that, oh, for my dad or my husband, it must mean that this category is unimportant. It is irrelevant. Because I know what he really is passionate about, it's this. And you could only fall into two categories like this. Either you're spiritually dead, that's fine. If you're dead, there's no life. There should be no passion. Or you are being so sluggish and stubborn in it. But with all earnestness, what? Passion, passion, passion. I tell Tate Elizabeth, you know, Dad, later on if we date or get married, yeah, God willing wants you to get married, great. You know, Dad, what do you think I should look for? Back when they used to listen to me. <laughs> I assume Christian. I assume responsible. That's a whole other topic. Just, just responsible, like gets things done when he says he's going to get it done. The other thing I recently told him, I said, please, please, Taylor Elizabeth, someone a lot better than dad. Of course, mom will tell you someone a lot better than dad. But if you meet a boy who goes to a church and you could never see passion or fervency from that man, I really hope you stay away. Because I don't know how you're going to grow. My friends, Tough word, huh? A tough landing. But do you know how you're going to make it to the end? The only reason I get passionate, worked up, and fervent about this is, again, when I am ignorant, Jesus is so gentle with me. If and when I am immature, manifold times, manifold ways, Jesus loves me too much to leave me there. And yes, yes, it has crossed my mind. Maybe passioning is too much. Maybe a Christian is not worth it. Maybe this whole believing and following after Jesus is so unpopular these days, 
maybe I'll just bail out. But he never bails out on me. He never bails out on me. And that's why I have full assurance until, with the hope that he will finish this until the very end. How will you make it to the end, my friends? How will this church make it to the very end? An earnestness, a passion that Jesus continues to show for you in every situation, in every way, at every time. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for today's word. We thank you for the movement and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would do your work to the people, to the specific individual people that need it in their own specific individual ways. Oh God, may your holiness and your love and your passion come through unmistakably. May this be from your word, not mine or others, but may it come with unmistakable clarity and power and may it bring forth good fruit, good growth for your pleasure and glory and for our joyful witness. Hear us, we pray. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.